2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 6, and there's a session about separation, and I think we'll find it very interesting because it's an issue that down through the centuries, literally through the centuries, if you go all the way back to the very early centuries of church history, there's always been an issue about just how much does God want Christians to separate from the world, and then it becomes an issue whether Christians should separate from one another. All right, and what? And so, when does it get to the point where a Christian should separate from other Christians, or at least um, people who say they're Christians? So that's an issue, and we're going to try to focus in on what Paul actually taught in context, because the section in Second Corinthians six and seven here, especially six is on that issue. And so I'm going to raise some practical questions. Some I know that some of you have even asked me about this matter. But before we do, let's begin. Don't you love spring? Isn't everybody happier? I'll tell you, I don't have real high expectations. I just love to come and see stripes on the parking lot. All right. (laughs) <laughs> that's 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 a that makes my day. I don't even have to see a robin. <laughs> well, you know what we saw in the backyard in a feeder, the last the last two days, a rooster pheasant, a big beautiful rooster pheasant that's been running around in our backyard, and I'm resisting the urge to try to catch him and eat him. <laughs> we were talking to somebody on the phone, and Diane's going, "Look at that! There's a pheasant in our backyard." So, anyhow, spring is here, the birds are out, and people are happy, and it's been a long winter. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to get together with one another as recipients of grace and mercy, because you're such a merciful God that you've had pity on us sinners and showered out love and forgiveness and cleansing from sins through the blood of Jesus. And now we're together rejoicing with one another in what you've done. We pray that this morning we might bring honor to your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay. <laughs> we introduced this idea last week and spent a little time on it, and, but I'm, I'm going to go right back to the verse we finished on, 2 Corinthians 6.14. It says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? And this is a biblical doctrine about separation, but last week what I tried to do was to show you the context by going back to 1 Corinthians and looking at what the issues were in Corinth. And we talked about quite a few verses last week. And we found out that the issue in Corinth was idolatry and sharing in meals with pagans in the context of idol worship. And that some of the Corinthians not only were claiming the right to share in the pagan meals in the context of idolatry, but actually were claiming the right to commit acts of fornication, which were, in the pagan world, often associated with the temple and the cults, um, temple prostitution and other such things. So in two regards, fornication was a problem. Number one, just in general, the sexual mores or ethics of the pagans were reprehensible, and they didn't even see this as a big deal. And in associated association with pagan cults where these things would happen, and the meals they shared. So remember, if, if you were here last week, we talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and Paul made the argument that because he, he would look back at the Exodus and how the people had the Passover, and they had the Passover meal, and they were baptized in the cloud and in the water, Spirit and water baptism, and they came out, and then they went into idolatry, and the Lord was displeased with them, and they came under judgment, and many of them died. 
And the application in 1 Corinthians 10 is you're doing the same thing if you become a Christian and you've been baptized and you've received the Holy Spirit and you received the Lord's Supper, analogous to what happened to them, and then you go down to the pagan cult and share in a meal with them, you're just as much a blasphemer and an idolater as your fathers were. And he's just as displeased with you, says Paul, as he was with them. So that was the argument. So what I said last week is that the, what, the primary thing that's lying behind this is that problem. So being bound together with unbelievers likely meant sharing with them in their pagan meals and in their immoral behavior. Now, the word bound together is uh, what they call a hapex, hapex legomena. Hapex legomena. Let's, who knows what that is? Eric, do you know? Yeah, the only, use only one time. Yeah, it means it's only showed up one time in the whole New Testament. So therefore, it's a little harder to find out what it means. But the likely source for this Greek word is the Septuagint use in the Old Testament. And it's found, a form of the word is found in Leviticus 19.19. So, who has the mic? Oh, the, the word is uh, heterozugontes. <laughs> All right? <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, what I was talking about, bound together, is the word we're concerned about in the English. Okay, okay so is that verse 16? Oh, excuse me. 14. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, bound together, is the word we're trying to interpret. And it's only used once in the New Testament, but... A different form of it. See, a word can be used sometimes as a very similar form as a verb or a noun or an adjective or whatever. So a similar form is found in uh, Leviticus 19.19. And go ahead, and then somebody look that up. I just wanted to say real quick, over the past couple of, of weeks, I've been reading some articles on where some Muslim, Christian, and uh, uh, Jewish leaders are getting together and they are discussing and trying to work out the differences with the, the pre-notion that they're all, We're going to uh, all be following together. the same uh, God. And then uh, yeah. a publication called Friends of Israel, they, they wanted nothing to do with it in their last uh, issue. And they, they quote this verse yeah. as to why they're doing what they're doing. All right. Now, in the context of, of Corinthians, I would say that's a legitimate application. The not being bound together has to do with the religious beliefs and practices of the pagans. The idolatry. And that's exactly what's on the table right now in, in uh, church history is this what they call interspirituality. This guy named Wayne Teasdale promotes this. And my latest research on the emergent church, I'm finding interspirituality. To me, that's a good application. But what was Leviticus 19.19? You are to keep my statutes. You are not to breed together two kinds of your cattle. You, are not, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seeds, nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. Okay, so that, the, the, the word was used there in the Septuagint, and the concept is also found where you can't yoke two kinds of ox, or, you know, like a, a donkey and a camel or whatever. I don't know what they might have done, but... Two different kinds of beasts together. So, in a sense, Paul's taking that Old Testament idea and saying that there's an incongruity to being yoked together with pagans in their practices and beliefs. Yes. Yeah, the New King James Version in uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Yeah, unequally yoked. And that is comes from the Old Testament use. All right of yoking the animals. But Paul's concern is with pagans, their beliefs, and their practices. Now, so that's what bound together means, or yoked together. And then there's this concept of partnership. Now, I want to talk about that. Now, I'm using the the New American Standard. Do not be bound together, yoked together with unbelievers for what partnership? The term partnership, metoke, 
means shared purposes and activities. Shared purposes and activities. In other words, having your having this the same focus and purpose. And one of the things that we need to decide, and I, I know Eric, you were investigating this one time, and I'm going to read an email I got from one of you that was asking a question about this. And I think one of the things that we're going to need to work on with this verse, or the next three or four or five verses, is what is a legitimate application. That's, that's what we struggle with. Because if you take this thing and really expand the idea, you end up becoming an isolationist. There's something wrong with everybody, so I can't have anything to do with anybody, including other Christians. And I've seen people do that. Or, if you don't take it seriously, you may end up transgressing this and doing what Paul said not to do. So we need to know exactly how this applies. Yes, Keith. Well, I was going to bring up a passage in Daniel. Because Daniel is considered by God to be righteous, a very righteous man. Mm-hmm. In Daniel, in Daniel 6, it said, It seemed good to Darius the king to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, and they'd be in charge of it. And then uh, Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners, and he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So Daniel a righteous man was running the pagan kingdom, or running a secular kingdom for a pagan king. And that was not considered a sin. It was considered something that was, that was exactly. fine. Exactly. And the men said, we'll find nothing, any ground accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. And I, I see this verse in uh, Corinthians. I've seen it applied to people. We're not going to go into business together. We're not going to own a business together. I'm too righteous to work with the pagans that are in my job or that kind of a thing. And I, yeah. I have a very hard time with that because if Daniel could run the kingdom for a, a Babylon, pagan king, nonetheless. A Babylon for a pagan <laughs> king and God considered him righteous, that doesn't seem to be the, the proper application because I go to work every day and I'm working with pagans and the only, job, only goal of this business is to make a dollar bill, which is, is not necessarily righteous or pagan, it just is. And I've worked with homosexuals. I've worked with very wicked people on a moral basis that are very talented. And we have a goal together that is to make a dollar bill. And I see this as being a legitimate thing to do as long as it's not a question of, of uh, religion or my beliefs before God. Your I'm beliefs not being asked, and practices. I'm not being asked to sin. And they've been ethical. It's just that they have other beliefs morally that I don't... Yeah. Absolutely. Sometimes they actually do better than some Christians. Christians with weak ethics. Right? Yeah, Christians with weak ethics. I was talking to, well, I won't name his name, but one of the speakers at the last Stealing the Mind who's very well nationally known, and we were discussing about how shabbily uh, one of our fellow Christian speakers, well, he wasn't there, but another brother was treated so nasty by these other Christians. And this guy said, I was a businessman for 20-some years before I went into the ministry. And I saw better ethics in most uh, secular businesses and how they treated one another on their boards and how they ran their companies than I see with these Christian ministries. He said, shame on us. Uh, the way they treated this one brother, they, just, they broke a contract, put his stuff out of his office, out in the hall, said, you're out of here. Because they disagreed with him teaching the truth of the gospel, and they were supposed to be Christian. Yes. I've seen a few instances where Christians have went into business as partnerships with non-believers, and it's caused a lot of problems because the non-believer wanted to do unethical things. And then, you know, when you're yoked up like that, I can see where that can cause some huge problems. Although we do work with people of the world, I, becoming right. partners can create a lot of problems. I let's, let's decide on this one right now, then. Okay, we've got an application on the table. Keith says it's okay. Troy says there could be problems. All right, we've got to decide. That's all right. That's how we learn. This is called prophesying in the church. <laughs> okay, we, uh, we, we have to try to determine. My, remember, my definition of prophecy was bringing out valid implications and applications of Scripture. And the other in partnership. All right, let's decide a partnership. All right, well, let's start with this, the, the lesser one, the working with. Last 
Well, this, this was an email I got from someone. Last Sunday I mentioned to you about these friends of ours. We have such a uh, hang-up with having anything to do with Mormons. I said anything because she had it in italics. These people have been poor as long as we've known them. Now they have a business opportunity as sales representatives. They could both work at together, but because the owners of the company are Mormons, they said they could not do anything that would contribute to their welfare, success, or in- income. So let's... let's Here's a case in point. Is it a sin to work for a Mormon because your efforts are helping the Mormons succeed in their business? He says no. Jacob worked for Pharaoh? (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Exactly. Somebody said if it was a prostitution ring, I wouldn't do it. So in that case... You wouldn't work for somebody doing something illegal or immoral to make them money, but what if they're just doing something like buying and selling grain? I think the issue isn't one of spirituality. The issue is one of ethics. We have a code of ethics in the Bible that we're supposed to obey. We're supposed to obey our masters. It says in, you know, Paul says, slaves obey your pagan masters. And in that context, they were actually owned by a pagan master. At least their bodies physically were owned by by pagans, and they were expected and commanded by Paul to serve the pagan masters unto the Lord in everything that they could. That didn't, if the pagan master commanded them to disobey the moral will of God, they would say no and die for it. Yes. But there is nothing uh, wrong with enriching a pagan master through with, your efforts. Through your efforts. Very good application. That's an astute reading. Yes. Uh, one of the issues uh, that I've noticed with cults as well as pagans that own businesses is that they want you to sign a covenant in the issue of, uh, you know, I was involved in a, in a uh, cult called Maranatha, and they at one time had a written agreement that you would submit uh, basically for life uh, to their leadership, un, un, you know, unqualified or, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. And in the in the business of uh, business ownership or working for somebody, oftentimes there's a non-compete agreement. And also, like in my case, uh, I'm in electronics, and I've had to uh, I, I've been approached with written agreements uh, that are binding upon me and my heirs forever in case I would invent something, you know, and and it would be their their property, their right, and and. This issue of covenant deal is a big one with me, and okay. I'd like you to address that. So we want to talk about covenant. Well, I don't know that um, one application of this that has been made in church history is in marriage, okay, and do not be yoked together with unbelievers. So the, the teaching, I don't know if that's what Paul has in mind here, but it might be a legitimate application. I, I would say this. Because of 1 Corinthians 7, I would never advise a Christian to marry a non-Christian because you're jeopardizing the relationship before you start. Because it says that the unbeliever may depart. Okay? And so on that grounds, I would, I would say that. Uh, but I don't know that you can uh, rule out business contracts that are necessary to do business on the face of the earth. Because you have to have contracts to function. That's how I would look at it. Yes? I know for a fact that God intends that for, for one thing can um, refer it to marriage because he used it in my life at age 20. And I broke up with, I was a baby Christian, went to my first Bible study. And at the door, the pastor asked, do you have any more questions about the Bible? And I said, well, I'm going to be married. What does the Bible say about marriage? And he pulls out Second Corinthians 614. Mm-hmm. And it was like a bolt of lightning. And I, I spent the whole night wrestling with God. And the very next day, I ended up breaking up with, with the friend. Okay. So I know for sure. It, changed, it was a real defining well, moment. We know for me. sure because the Scripture says what the Scripture says. Also, That's I, true. I wanted to say that uh, Joseph and... Daniel were both involuntarily put in the positions they were put in. Well, that's true, but involuntarily, in Joseph's case, God sent him to do what he did. It says that. God sent him. So we have the approval of God for what Joseph did. 
Right. But I think he made the best of a bad situation because God is sovereign over everything. Yeah, but he said, God sent me to preserve life. And I don't think that Joseph's narrative tells us we can't work for somebody who's not a Christian. But you must admit, it was involuntarily how he got there. That's true. But, but nevertheless, I don't, I don't agree that the Joseph narrative doesn't apply to this. If you look at Daniel, he's a very good example. The, chapter, the whole story of Daniel starts out with the king offering him food and Daniel choosing to obey what he had was a moral law in his, in his diet. Yeah. And he was willing to die for what he, what he was doing there. So it wasn't involuntary. Joseph could have said no and died. There's lots of people in the Bible that when it's a choice between good and evil, they will choose good yeah. and pay the price with their life, and that's a noble thing. Joseph and Daniel didn't, have, didn't choose death because it wasn't an issue of evil or good. I thought of another verse. <laughs> Jeremiah had a word from God that said that when you go to, the ba- to Babylon, work for the welfare of the country where you are. Did he not? That's in Jeremiah. So therefore, we have the moral law of God telling telling us that Daniel did what God told him to do. Yes. I guess more the point I was trying to make is um, is that if you do enter into a partnership with an unbeliever, I don't see necessarily that there's anything biblically wrong with that. But if you're, let's say you're going to open a Christian bookstore, you're, just going to be, you're definitely going to be disobeying in that regard because Wait. that person's going to want to sell all kinds of heresy. And, well, you know what, In areas though. of spirituality, you need to... Or you'd have to make an agreement ahead of time that any spiritual things you yeah. had laid out in writing. But in that case, the big problem is making a deal with a Christian. It's the Christians that can't figure out what books are supposed to be in their bookstore. That's true nowadays, <laughs> yep. You know, we got more problems with Christians than we do with unbelievers. Uh, yeah, just try to find a Christian bookstore that's not selling heresy. There's a, there's a few out there, but not, not there's the big not ones. There's not very many. Ones. Okay, somebody's going to try to find the Jeremiah passage. Yes. <laughs> How does this apply to Esther? Is to Esther? Yeah. Another good point. Yeah, Esther is another example of somebody that worked for the welfare of the nation that she was in. But when it came down to a moral issue, in other words, Haman wanted to kill all the Jews. Remember Mordecai said, you may be here for just such a time, so if you become quiet, God will, or help will arise. God's not mentioned in Esther, by the way. Help will arise from somewhere else. Here. Um, but, but, so don't expect you'll be saved. I'm just paraphrasing that. Now, um, I, I knew this would be an invigorating discussion because <laughs> Christians have not agreed on this for, since, uh, the days of the apostles, all right? And even Paul had to put a caveat on his own teaching in 1 Corinthians 5. Because remember when they had an immoral person who was bragging about his immorality? 1 Corinthians 5. And the Corinthians were going to do anything about it. And he said to, to throw them out of the congregation and have church discipline and don't associate with them. But then when he said, then he put the caveat, somebody might want to look this up. Somebody look up 1 Corinthians 5, and I'm thinking it's about verse 6 or somewhere about there, where he says, when I told you not to associate with immoral people, I did not mean the immoral people in the world, because otherwise you'd have to go out of the world. Okay? So he said you can do commerce in the world with immoral people. Because that's the way the world is, and this is the world we live in. And Paul did not envision a separatist Christianity. Because that's what the Galatians wanted to create, and he anathematized them. The Galatians wanted to create a separatist Christianity by enacting how to do so. Well, the easiest way to do it is to enact the Old Testament laws. Because the purpose of the Old Testament law for Israel... One of the purposes was to keep them separate so that they would maintain 
their integrity as Israel because of the promise of Messiah would come through Israel so that they would not be absorbed into the other tribes like the Hittites and the Amorites and, and those people that no longer exist. So God gave them Sabbath, circumcision, and food laws, and it worked. And it's worked until this very day. It keeps them separate. But those laws were canceled for the church because God did not want the church to be separate. In that sense. Why? Because the church is the vehicle for bringing the gospel into all the tribes of the world. And if we just never left Jerusalem and kept circumcision Sabbath and the food laws and just stayed in Jerusalem separate, the whole world would be lost without the gospel. All right? And so when the Galatians try to create a separatist Christianity by using the food laws and circumcision or whatever they wanted to do, Paul anathematized them. Do you agree, Ryan? Amen. All right. See, if Ryan agrees, I know I'm right. <laughs> what else do we need? Okay, yeah. I have Jeremiah 29. Okay. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and, I pr- and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. All right. Yeah, thank you, Michelle. That's the passage we were concerned about. So, so that's what God was telling them. Here's the separatist passage, the false prophets and their separatists. This is Jeremiah 28, 14. So do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, You will not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lot to you. I lie to you. For I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they prophesy falsely in my name, in order that I may drive you out and that you may perish, you and your prophets. Do not listen to the... So, so the false prophets are saying, separate, don't serve these guys. And Jeremiah God, said to serve the welfare. Now, in the, in the church... In a church, here, uh, this I, I know for a fact from, from studying the New Testament. God intended his church to be sent out into all of the arenas of life, into the highways and the byways, into all of the nations, and, in, and into the marketplaces and the places wherever people gathered so that the gospel of Jesus Christ would spread. And... Consider your own calling, brothers and sisters. If you think about how you became a Christian and how other people you know became Christian, it's amazing that the majority of people became Christians through the witness of some individual person that they met somewhere. Is that not true? Thousands, millions of people have become Christians because they worked with a Christian or married into a family where there was a Christian or somebody they knew became a Christian. And so the, the salt and light are these individual Christians that are put as seasoning into the fabric of the world where their witness leads other people to Christ. So, had God wanted to create a separatist Christianity, he could easily have done so by just not negating the food laws and the circumcision law, and the Sabbath law, because all those things created separation. Yeah, then there's Acts 15, where they purposely decided not to be separatists, or force the Gentiles to be separatists. So what we are to separate from is clearly idolatry and immorality and false beliefs. The beliefs and practices of the world. Okay, try and then... I've got the verse here in 1 Corinthians. Okay. But first I'd like to suggest that to go into business with some of these uh, these bookstores, I think, would be to un- yoke unequally because I I believe that they're unbelievers or they're in disobedience if they're selling Yeah, heresy. they're disobedient Christians. Well, I would not want to be in a Christian book-selling business very bad right now because all the money is being made on heresy. And there's compromise everywhere. I think the best thing to do is just sell books at a local church and you know you agree with. Yep. <laughs> okay. All right, um, go ahead. Try. It's First Corinthians 5.9. Uh, I wrote you in a letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all 
I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. All right. So the church discipline is for Christians, and if we're in a business, and you're, I mean, let's say you get a job, and your boss is some sort of a, you know, pagan guy that cheats on his wife. The Bible doesn't command you to quit your job, as far as what he just read, in my opinion. You may, may be grieved, but we're going to be grieved until the rapture. If we're not grieved, it's a sign the Holy Spirit's not at work in us. Because remember, Lot, it says his, his righteous soul was vexed day by day as he beheld the unprincipled conduct of godless men. So grief it comes with the territory, but I, I promise you one day we're going to be with the Lord and it would be nothing but holiness. And what really grieves us is our own sin. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. To me, it's all about our witness. It, it doesn't have to do with, I mean, when you talk about all these Old Testament people, they, it was their witness that people respected. Yeah. Even if it was unto death, it was their witness for the things that they were not willing to go to, but they still were in the world, using, doing with the world, and that's what they were supposed and they, to do. Yeah, they, the they witness were eventually brings people to you so you can spread the gospel. Yes, exactly. You know, that's sort of like, the, remember the passage says, we're in the world but not of the world? And Jesus prayed for them, that, not to take them out of the world, but that we might be kept from the evil one. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, deliver us from the evil one. So because we are integrated into the world by God's design for the sake of his compassion on the lost, that they might be saved, we have to pray that God preserves us. And frankly, I think the bigger issue, and this is one we'll have to talk about, and I don't know how many weeks it's going to take us to get through this verse, but... It's a key verse. I think the bigger issue is what to do with the compromised church. That's, that's harder to deal with, is compromised Christians. Because they're a worse temptation. You expect the pagans to be a mess, but you expect the church to be a safe place of refuge. Yes. Well, and that's my next question. I'll present more of an ethical dilemma on this Christian bookstore theme. It's fine to say you have a Christian bookstore. I think that if you're going to open a bookstore, the reason a Christian bookstore exists is to make money. If it doesn't make money, ultimately it will fail because it's a bookstore. Bookstores are designed to make money. If you want to give away books, that's a different issue because you're not in, in business to give away books. You're giving away books because you want the message to get out. So I think a bookstore, Christian or non-Christian, exists to make money. You want to make the, the, the principles of the, the uh, uh, purpose-driven or seeker-sensitive, meeting felt needs, that's very much a viable business marketing tactic. It makes a lot of money. The reason it is there, because it makes money, and if you make money, you can fund other Christian books, and that's not a sin. It's a marketing tool. It's different than giving away the truth of the gospel that we're commanded but to. But isn't it a sin to purpose for a Christian to purposely deceive others in order to make money? Yes. That, that, that's, that's a sin. That's a sin. Now, let's look at... So let it, the pagans sell purpose-driven books. Is it... Here, my, my, here's my question. You could have a pagan, you could have a pagan printing press. Now, when a Christian writes a book, say we write a book about emergent church, yeah, and a pagan uh, press decides to say, "Oh, I can make some money on this because this is a hot topic," and decides to take up your book. And they're, they're printing other kinds of books. They're printing books on the Dalai Lama and the Book of Mormon and this and that. Hmm. Now, where does that happen? Uh, and how know. does that work? Because now we end up with some interesting overtones. <laughs> okay, so let's say, um, let's say this is never going to happen. I can't even get the Christians to want to print my book. But, no, that, uh, but it might happen because the Christians <laughs> are the ones that don't want to. But let's say uh, uh, Rand McNally decides they want to publish my book. What do you think? See, I think it's way Can we easier. only buy paper from Christian pulp factory or paper factories? Well, I, think no. it's, I think it's way easier if a pagan publisher decides to print your book 
then if... Because uh, they don't care what's in it. Right. <laughs> then, then it's not an endorsement on the other things. That, it's not an obvious endorsement on the other things that the, the pagan publishers publish. It's, yeah, that's true. It's not an obvious endorsement. And I think that's also true. Let's say Erdman's, for example. Erdman's is a huge publisher, and their main business is publishing very scholarly material. In fact, all of my, or not all of them, many of the best commentaries and best scholarly works that I have in my library are published by Erdman's. But, is it, but if Erdman's published something I don't agree with, does that mean I can't use the ones I do agree with? I don't think so. But if, if what, what's, a, what's a very heretical... Um Zondervan is the worst case right now. So, so, so Zondervan. If you've got heresy, they will beat a path to your door. So, so if Zondervan beat a path to your door to publish the emergent, <laughs> would that be worthwhile? If they wanted to publish a book against it, so they make money on both ends, I don't think it's going to happen. That's a hypothetical question. I'm going to do a pageant, did. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen, but. <laughs> he said the bigger problem is. The, the heresy in the church. Yes. How can we deal with that? Well, you almost have to deal with each individual. You, you, can't, deal with, you can't deal with the problem from up here. You have to deal yeah. with it on a, on a personal All right. level. Let's talk about that one. In this case, you have to, there are two things that have to be somewhat balanced. All right? If you go to an extreme with compromise, anything goes, and you just open the floodgates. That's a sin, because the flock has to be protected by the elders of the church against heresy. And I totally believe that. But on the other hand, you can create unnecessary separation by becoming extremely parochial, and you won't allow anybody into your church that doesn't toe the line on everything, including the kind of clothes they wear, the kind of car they drive, what kind of music they like, what kind of, everything is controlled, everything's a law from the elders, and you create a, such a separatist, I mean, in the, let's say the most extreme case we could think of would probably be the Amish, right? Absolute extreme separation, or, or as I said last week, the Desert Fathers. The guy wants to be so holy, he goes out in the middle of the desert and doesn't let another Christian anywhere around him. That is not God's idea. Or making laws that are not biblical. Everybody that comes must wear a white shirt. We were talking about that last week. Now, why should we be separated based on a white shirt? Or everybody that comes to our church must carry only the King James Bible or they're not allowed in the church. That's me. No. <laughs> Stifle yourself. All right. <laughs> the point is, you're creating separation. That you know what I mean by parochialism um, or isolationism. We are the only pure Christians, and we don't want to be sullied by anybody else. What's wrong with it? Well, there's several things wrong with it because you made yourself a lawgiver, and God's the only legitimate lawgiver. And the other thing's wrong with it is it really hinders evangelism. The more eccentric you can create Christians, uh, let me tell you a personal story on that one. When I was first saved, and Diane was first saved, the, the church we went to was just on the transition from an isolated church to one that was integrated into the community. And they'd been in existence since the 30s. There was a revival in the 30s in our little town in Iowa. And... This church came into existence because of the revival, and they were very isolationist and, and legalistic. And they had a huge list of rules, and everybody looked eccentric, everybody dressed eccentric, and everything had to be whatever it was like in the 30s. And they didn't allow anything to change because the 30s was when history stopped and God approved. All right? 40s bad, 50s bad, 60s bad, 30s good. So they were still in the 30s. And the pastor, the one that did our wedding, Pastor Carlo, came into that town, and they hadn't baptized anybody other than children of their own people for 30 years. They hadn't baptized anybody. The first people to be baptized, they said, was Diane and I. The whole, her whole family and me were the first people they'd baptized in decades. But this pastor came in and, and changed the isolationism. 
He came in. He didn't change his doctrine, but he changed the isolationism. He said, you don't all have to wear the same dress that your grandma wore in, in the 30s. You don't have to uh, be so, we don't have to be like this. And he got a job, remember, the school bus driver. Because everybody thought that little church on the other side of the track, little Pentecostal church, was nobody would even think of stepping foot in there or having friendship with any of those people because they were so isolated from everybody else. Hold on. Yeah, Diane's, just a little background. Her dad's house, you could see that church from across the park, at yeah. least one that Dutch Elm killed all the trees. Right. All right. The, it was all just right. on the other side of the park from my house, so I could see it. But when I was a kid growing up, we were told, if you're going to walk down that street, walk on the other side. Because that's how extreme they thought those people. They, they yeah. were really Keep weird. And you children. didn't even want to walk on the same yeah. side of the street. Keep your them. children away from those weird people in that yeah. church. That's the way. That's how isolated they were. And, and this pastor came in and said no to all this. He didn't get rid of all the rules. They were still there. That you know you can't go to the theater and you know uh, because you know how hard it is to change those things. But he got a job as a school bus driver, and he was a friendly man, a loving man, and he just was happy driving the bus. The kids loved him, and people decided, oh, that church isn't dangerous. See, they were told not to even walk by the church. And what happened was people started coming to the church. They started visiting. They started getting saved, and they ended up dozens of people. We were the first ones. We were the very first ones to have been saved in that church for years. And me and Diane's family, and then after that, a lot more people came in because, see, they took down the needless walls. Now, the seeker movement has took that good thing and turned it into a bad thing, all right? Because the good thing is don't give needless offense. Don't give offense to Jew nor Greek nor the Church of God. Now, the seeker movement says, well, we have to go further than that. We have to change everything we do, including what we teach. We got to change our message. We can't preach on the blood atonement. Uh, people don't aren't interested in truth. Remember my seminar on that? I quoted the famous seeker guy. People aren't looking for truth. They're looking for relief. So what are we going to offer them? Relief. Well, that church that we went in, we went there because they had the truth. All right? They had the truth that we needed to repent and believe the gospel. That's, what we, that's why we were baptized in that church. Uh, I wasn't looking for relief. I was going to get relief by my chemical engineering degree and the money I was going to make. Um, but I needed relief from the burden of sin, and they had it. So the two extremes are becoming like the world in every way within the church in our message and even in our morals, which would be terrible if that happened which Paul forbids, which is, in a sense, idolatry then, or becoming so isolated that we're not fulfilling the Great Commission and people that need the gospel are walking on the other side of the street, not because of our gospel, because we were weird. There's, there, we don't have to be weird to please God. Uh, okay, Patrick and then, and then Keith and then Larry. So we've explored a lot about what this verse doesn't mean, yes. right? It, negative, negative. It can't mean this because of this verse. It can't mean that because we don't want to be isolationists. Um, to try to get to a positive, like what does it mean? Yes. Um, I mean, certainly it means, in verse 16, what agreement is there between the temple of God and of idols? There, we cannot idols. be in the yoke together religiously or spiritually with pagans. Exactly. Would it be a good idea to start from there and see maybe what else could it apply to? Okay, well, here's what we do know it applies to. It applies to idolatry, because Paul said it did in 1 Corinthians. And it applies to immorality, because he said it did. Fornication and idolatry. That's what it applies to, we know. Now, there may be further implications. Good starting point. Thank you, Patrick. Yes, Larry. You know, this is a spirited discussion, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if you're going to get around to it today, maybe next week or the week after, but it's interesting when you brought up about the separatist movement in the news now about these black uh, liberation theologists, how much of a separation movement is that? Because they're talking a whole bunch of different things, and I believe that a religion that separates people because of race or government or something like that isn't legitimate. 
valid application. I believe that separation based on race would be sinful in any church. Because anybody whom God saves, whether they're Jew, well, Paul uses all the categories, male, female, bond, (laughs) Greek, Jew, any kind of category that was salient in the first century, Paul says that we're all one in Christ. And that sort of separation based on race has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Ever. If God saves somebody, thank God. And, that, you know, the greatest unifying thing there is, remember your experience at seminary? Uh, well, I'll tell you, maybe you can tell your own story. Do you want to tell your own story? Well, the one, which one? <laughs> the one where they're talking about racial reconciliation, and then at the end, they never talked about the gospel. All right. Okay, there and then there. Well, I wanted to make one comment. To be really spiritual in this church, do we have to have a tan tie and black pants? And a yes, that's it. That, that's it, see? <laughs> my brother, my brother I, here. I was just wondering. <laughs> Some of, some of you did not get the clothing memo. <laughs> and, and, and when, and when, I was, when, it, when it comes to the core of this argument, though, God didn't tell us to go out and preach against everything. He didn't say go out and preach against Caesar and preach against uh, the pagans and preach against this and preach against that. What God did say is go out and preach the gospel because we have good news to offer to people and we're only against things in as much as they oppose the gospel. That's it. Yeah. And so per, we have a message of positive reconciliation to be God. Be reconciled to be God. Be reconciled be, to God. Be reconciled yeah. to God. Be saved. That's our message. Our message isn't change your shirt and cut your hair and act nobly. That's not our message. Our, our message is to present the gospel and these other things happen. You can make yourself look like a Mormon missionary without being saved. Or a tan shirt. Um, we preach what sin is so that people know they need a Savior. But we don't preach what sin is because we think society can be reformed by straightening out their act without the gospel. All right, we need the gospel. Yes, tell the story about that class you were yeah, in. Yeah, I was taking a class on missions, and we had a whole, actually several sessions were on, several sessions were on, um, on race and racial reconciliation and things like that. And the gospel was really never being brought up. So finally I raised my hand and I said, the one thing that I have seen bind all people of races together is when people come to a living faith in Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. all of these differences, cultural or racial or whatever, fall to the background and we all bask together in the glory of our Jewish Savior. (laughs) <laughs> well, the, 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 the sad thing was it took to the end of the class for Ryan to bring up the gospel because the, the professor wasn't waiting. And you know what was interesting is the, the, um, the professor really didn't even get it. He, he just uh, he started asking me questions like, oh, so we don't need this other stuff? And I kind of said, well, some of this other stuff is fine, but we need to put the gospel first and foremost all the time. That is what yep. God has used to drive uh, people, one people from all tribe, nations, Amen. and tongues. Amen. And Amen. that's and, unity. And if we're not reconciled to God, even if we could get reconciled to everybody it doesn't else, matter. we'd be reconciled on our way to hell. Yep. And afterwards... Yeah. And afterward, what was nice is afterwards, uh, an African-American gentleman came up to me and said, you know what, I really heard you there. I really heard you. Well, that is, that, that's you. exactly true. Thank you, Ryan, for, for standing for the gospel. Uh, Pat over here, she's been patient. Well, maybe not. <laughs> um, just following on from what was just said, we all have to remember that there's just one human race. We are all under Adam and under Noah, and we're all, we may be very diverse in our looks and everything else, but we're all under Adam, all under Noah. We're all creatures of sin, and we need a Savior. Amen. The big racial problem in the world is the Adamic one. The Adamic race is lost, and that's us. Now, let me quote Burnett, back to what Patrick was saying. Let's, Let's focus on what this does mean. 
Burnett, uh, Barnett, excuse me, there's two different commentaries on Galatians. One, or there's a whole bunch, or uh, Second Corinthians, some, Burnett and Barnett, but I got Barnett. And there's others too. They are not, however, unbelievers per se, but as the theoretical questions imply, unbelievers at worship in the Greek and Greco-Roman mystery calls. Notice our passage says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. So unbelievers at worship in the Greco-Roman mystery cults of Corinth. In our view, Paul is here addressing the circumstances that precipitated his emergency visit and the writing of the severe letter. Namely, the Corinthians' accelerated slide toward idolatry and sexual immorality that were endemic in the community within the Achaean capital as part of Greece. The Corinthians have set some of those matters right, though not others. Then he referenced passages. The apostle wants the Corinthians to know that in light of his pending final visit, his heart is open to them as he hopes theirs will be to him. But this means they must not be joined to the unbelievers in their cultic worship. So we know that was Paul's issue. And there's enough textual evidence that is undeniable. So we know that Christians cannot be joined together in unbelievers in cultic worship. Now, is there an application for us? I'm, let's talk about one. We're, you know, as long as we're, all the controversies are out on the table here today, would that mean the Roman Catholic Church? Everybody's agreeing? You don't know? Some don't know. Most would say yes. Okay, over here. Okay, go ahead. Well, I just had the comment that, you know, what most churches pretty much in all of America, whether you're Catholic, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Pentecostal, whether you're a church of God, whether you're this church, um, it, most Americans have a pretty, we have a pretty moral society because the laws of the land that have been developed through our, our forefathers. Americans live fairly moral lives on the outside, as it appears. And, and the things that the sins that people participate in right now are the sins that come across the air and the satellite and the television and the computers. And you, you participate in these sins in the privacy of your own home. Okay? Because it's there. It's out there. Okay, so separation is an issue that we have to have between us and God because people aren't seeing it. Right. But the, but the point they're making is back in the day when these scriptures were made, they didn't have satellite TV. Uh, no, they did not. So how did, how did people have these awful sins they were dealing with except they had to go someplace where people were actually doing it to witness it? That's true. But there's even a bigger issue. They were claiming a right to do it. Sure. They, it's, hard okay. to, it's one thing to get delivered from your sin, but it's hard to get delivered from your friend. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and the, the pagan cultures of the day didn't have, you know, squad cars, <laughs> you know, to go well, stop they, somebody who was doing, breaking the law. A lawman, the first real lawman that we know of were the United States Marshals. Well, that, you know... They had they they did restrain evil. Uh, they had laws about murder and robbery and what have you in the Roman Empire. They yeah, just yeah. And, this, and who carried out those laws? The soldiers, the Roman well, soldiers. Well, yeah, the civil law. They, that's their job to do. Okay. Eric preached a sermon on that here. That the civil law is supposed to restrain evil. But in our case, we need to know what the Christian is to separate from. So I, I put on the table: if you become a Christian and you're Roman Catholic, can you can continue to go? to the mass that has, in our view, idolatrous practices. I think in my reading, I can go and work with a Catholic or a Muslim or a Buddhist and go feed people. We could have a common goal to go do something noble because it doesn't hurt anything to go do something noble together just because it's nice to be a nice guy. I can't participate and elevate the authority of the Pope, the deity of Mary, or the things that the Catholics are doing in a Mass, and endorse that, because I think to do that, that would be sinning. Okay. So, I... Dick, do you want to comment on that? No? <laughs> oh, sorry. We, we don't expect elders to have to comment. 
We're just picking on the ex-Catholics here. <laughs> yes, Robert. Uh, well, I am one. I, All right. I was okay, raised Catholic. Uh, my dad was a deacon in the Catholic Church, and you know, uh, I mean, we we did the whole thing, the rosary, and and a lot of that. But uh, once you once you have the truth of the gospel in you, I just tell people I, I've gone from being a Roman Catholic to a roaming Catholic. <laughs> Small C, Universal <laughs> Church of Christ. Part of the Universal Church. Yeah, because okay. uh, I just found that it was, for me, it was a real hindrance to grow in my faith because I kept, there was the whole, a lot of the shame and expectation that you were going to act in a certain way. I, I remember on a good Friday, I, I went to a, a local drugstore when I was a younger, younger kid, and uh, I ordered a malt and a hamburger during Lent, right? And I, all of a sudden, the parish priest walked in. And, all of, a, and of course, for me, I went, oh, I'm, you know. Caught. And so I went over to him we and, I said, and I said, you know, I'm, I've ordered this hamburger and now I, I realize that I shouldn't be eating it. And he goes, I, I said, you know, am I, am I committing a sin if I eat this? And he said, I think you'd be committing a sin if you didn't eat it. Really? Yeah. So they didn't take your own thing seriously. Well, in my case, I was saved when I was going to a liberal church where the pastor didn't believe in the gospel. So I left. I think anybody will want to gather. I mean, we we have to to sit under the means of grace. So here's what I'm saying. If God converts you, uh, and this this comes from the Reformation, the Reformation wanted to define what is a church, okay, because they were separating from Rome. What is a church? What, how do we define a true church? Because that was a big debate. And remember what they decided? The church, a true church exists, it's not, and this is Luther's definition, true church exists where the Word of God is taught in purity and they still use the term sacraments, which we don't use, but he used the term, and the sacraments are administered according to the Lord's admonition. So in other words, if the word is preached so the people are converted, and the Lord's Supper is kept according to the Lord's ordinance, and you baptize converts according to the Lord's ordinance, you know that a true church exists. Now, by that definition, if you're going to a church where the word is not purely taught, you're not going to a church by the definition of the Reformation, and the question is, is that a biblical definition? And I believe that it is, because of Acts 2.42 and so on. I was just going to say, if you are truly converted, and back to what this woman was saying down here, whether the whether things are popping up on your computer or you have to venture out to find sin, if you are converted, you're going to avoid, you're going to flee from sin. Yes. So it really doesn't matter what age we're living in. Yeah, that's if, true. If you're going to flee anyway. Yeah, yeah. Here, here's the issue. One of the signs of conversion is that you feel badly about your own sin. It's, the sign of conversion is that, isn't that you become sinless, but that you want to be delivered and that you are vexed. And in some ways, it's more difficult for us because when you're in the flesh, everything's pulling in the same direction. Okay, if you're serving the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil are everywhere around, and you don't have to fight anything. You just go with the flow. Exactly. But when you become converted, now you're fighting the whole world. You're going in a different direction than the whole world around you. Right? Is that true? I hope it is. Amen. Yeah. The problem with Catholicism is that when you're in it, you don't have any categories for everything that you're talking about this morning. Example, our case, when I met the Lord, it was seven months until I knew I was saved because it took me that long to find the place in the Bible that popped. Okay? That sounds ridiculous, but there is no category for saved. Trent says you can't be, you're anathema. Okay? The second part is all this stuff about the Mass, eventually you start off with all that training... And it takes a while for it to penetrate that, hey, this is wrong. We're recreating Calvary, and Hebrews tells us we can't. Yeah. There's a ton of that. So then you have to go. Yes. Eventually it dawns on you. I think that's true. I think that's what happens. And I'm not being 
just picking on Catholics because I had to get out of the liberal Methodist church for the same reason. They didn't have a, I went to my pastor and told him I was saved. Okay. And he said, well, I tried that when I was a young man, but I found out it doesn't work. Basically, you can't, you can't know that you're saved. You can't, there's heaven and hell, you don't have to worry about it. Okay, yeah. What? Okay, I gotta, okay, we're done, out of time, I gotta give you an answer. Here's the answer. Uh, we must separate from idolatry and immorality. Based on 1 Corinthians. We must separate from idolatry and immorality. And I would say anything that's sin, we want God to deliver us from, right? But we're not to separate from the world in regard to just doing business and and going about our lives. God wants his church to be the witness, the salt and light, and the witness in the highways and byways of life. And remember next week, let's revisit the idea of marriage, and let's see if we agree that it's wrong for a Christian to knowingly marry a non-Christian. I think it is, but let's, we didn't explore that very deeply, okay? I think that it is, and, but let's explore the implications of that next week. I knew this was going to take a while, but I don't mind, because we were talking about this months ago during this discussion. Today, Ryan is preaching, and he's beginning his series on First John. That's why I'm happy and light here. I'm not... <laughs> I'm not weighed down with the thoughts of what I'm going to preach. So God bless you and see you upstairs.